So yes, what is typically referred to as the I am statements of Jesus, there are seven of them um, where Jesus Christ declared about himself and revealed his identity and saying, I am this, I am that. So we pointed out seven of them are all found in the book of John. I am the way, truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good, I am the good shepherd and the door. I am what else? So there are seven of them anyways. Um, and we'll be looking at them one after the other. So today we're going to look at two of them together. And that is a good shepherd and the door. And we find our text in John chapter 3. Sorry, John chapter chapter 10. Not, not 3. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And we would read. So because, because the um because the context carries the two revelation of Jesus Christ being the good shepherd and um, um Jesus Christ being the door. So we're just going to take two of them, these, these two um, identities together, and we'll read it. Okay, well, let's read them together. So please, someone can read for us John chapter 10. Um, we'll commence reading from, from verse 6 to verse 18. John chapter 6, verse 10. Sorry, John, John chapter 10, verse 6 to 18. Anyone there should please read for us. John chapter 10, verse 6 to 18. Anyone helping us? John chapter 10, verse 6 to 18. All right. Jesus told the Pharisees this even though they didn't understand the word of what we meant. So Jesus went over it again. I speak to you eternal truth. I am the gate of the flock. All those who broke in me, all those who broke in before me are thieves who came to steal. But the shepherd never listened to them. But the sheep, rather, never listened to them. I am the gateway. To enter through me is to experience life, freedom, and satisfaction. A thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to slaughter and destroy. But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect. Life in its fullness until you overflow. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life as a sacrifice for the sheep. But the worker who serves only for wages is not a real shepherd because he has no heart for the sheep. He will run away and abandon them when he sees the wolf coming. And when the wolf mauls the sheep, drags them off and scatters them. I alone am the good shepherd and I know this and I know those whose hearts are mine for they recognize me and know me just as my father knows my heart I know my father's heart I am ready to give my life for the sheep. 16 I have another sheep that I will gather which are not of this Jewish flock and I was and I will join them all into one with one shepherd, 17. The father has an intense love for me because I freely give my own life to raise it up again. 18. I surrender my own life and no one has the power to take my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and the power to take it, take it back again. This is the destiny my father has set before me. 
Amen. Thank you so much, Faith. All right. So, um, in this context, Jesus was talking about um, salvation, predominantly the salvation experience. And we see that in mentioned a couple of times in these um, passages that we just read. And with regard to the salvation experience, Jesus Christ reveals himself in two ways. He says, number one, he's the door or the gates, depending on translation you use, uh, meaning he's the access, he's the only legitimate access into salvation. And then number two, he reveals himself as the shepherd. And uh, regarding the shepherd, he says that this, in fact, not just shepherd, he says he's the good shepherd. Um, and that the good shepherd, the major way you know the good shepherd is that he lays down his life for his sheep, okay? So I want us to break this down and take them one after the other. However, when you look at verse, um, verse 7, just said, I am the dove, the sheep. Then verse 8, he says that all those who came before me were thieves and robbers, and, and the sheep did not hear them. So now, um, as a matter of history, and even, even the book of Acts confirms this, that before Jesus Christ came, there were so many people that um, came and portrayed themselves as the Messiah. And, you know, at some point they carried, they had a lot of following. Um, but time eventually told, revealed the truth. Time eventually let us know or let the people know at that, at that um, dispensation who the real Messiah was. So Jesus Christ was saying that all these people that came before me that posed as the Messiah, all right, they were not really the Messiah, okay? And I just, I just want to clarify something here because um, some, some people have interpreted this verse to mean that um, all the prophets and all the um, messengers that God sent before before Jesus Christ came, and that, that those were who Jesus Christ was referring to. But that is not, those were not who Jesus Christ was referring to, because everyone that, that Jesus Christ, um, everyone that prophesied about Jesus, all the prophets and um, the, the people of God that, that God sent, right, before Jesus Christ came. So all the Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, everyone that prophesied about Jesus Christ did not present themselves as the Messiah. They presented themselves as the as as the as a prophet um, foretelling the coming of Jesus Christ. And even when John the Baptist came, right, John the Baptist made it clear that he's not the Messiah, but he he's one sent ahead. Okay, so I just want to clarify that Jesus Christ wasn't referring to the prophets or to or to the messengers that God had sent before him. Rather, he was referring to the people who, prior to his coming, had posed to be the Messiah, and they had deceived a lot of people. And Jesus Christ explains to us that, see, these people, the way you know that they are not even the shepherd is that when the wolf comes, they, they, they flee away, they run away. Meaning when danger comes, they don't, they can't, they don't have the ability to give their life, give their lives for the people they claim to lead. But only Jesus Christ was able to do that. And that's one of the ways that we know he's, he's the Messiah. Okay? So, Today's topic, today's discussion is around Jesus Christ, the door, and Jesus Christ, the shepherd. So we're going to start with the door first. Um, let us read again. I'll just read for emphasis sake. I'll read verse 7, and I will read, um, I'll read verse 7, and I'll read verse 9. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep, meaning I am the access for the sheep. And I want to emphasize something that, what Jesus Christ was saying here is that he's the only legitimate access that the sheep, excuse me, he's the only legitimate access that the sheep can have. 
Then verse 9 says, I am the door. He now says that by me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved. So Jesus Christ now begins to give us context to what we can access when we go through the door. You know, it's just like saying, um, if I come and tell, if I point at, at a door, for instance, and I say, oh, that's the door. The first thing you're going to ask me is the door to where? I mean, if I open the door, if I go through the door, where would it lead me to? Okay. And Jesus Christ in verse 9 explained that to us. He said, I am the door. If any man enters in, he shall be saved. Meaning that anybody who goes through Jesus Christ must experience salvation. Even if you don't know what is on the other side of the door, provided you go through Jesus Christ, the better outcome is you'll be saved. Also, what that means is that there is no way for anyone to be saved except he goes through Jesus Christ. And it's very, this may sound basic, but it's very important to establish it, that there is no other way anyone will be saved except through Jesus. And um, the book of Acts says that, that no, no, no other name is given unto man by which will be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was saying that if you go through me, um, you will be saved. He now goes on to say that, and um, that same verse 9 says, and shall go in and out and find pasture, um, meaning the, the sheep will carry out their normal activities and then they'll find satisfaction. So in and out there means um, their daily living. And then they say they'll find pasture. Pasture means satisfaction here. Now, I want to emphasize something regarding the salvation. You know, because Jesus Christ made a very bold statement. And I want you to think about it in the context of this, of his, of the settings. There were Pharisees that were disputing. And if you read chapter 9, you would see that um, Jesus Christ had healed a man that, would, that was born blind. And the man said, said to them that if this man, if this person called Jesus can heal my eyes, even though I was born blind, then this man must be the Messiah. But the Pharisees said, no, this cannot be the Messiah because um, simply because he healed the man on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees' argument, they said the Messiah cannot break the Sabbath, <clears throat> the Sabbath law by healing a man. And so there was this contention whether argument as to whether Jesus Christ is the Messiah or, or not, simply because Jesus Christ performed the miracle on, on the Sabbath. And so Jesus Christ now said, he made a very bold statement um, in verse 9. He said that, I am the door. If any man enters by me, he be, enters through me, he'll be saved. Many Josh guys was categorically saying that you cannot access salvation through any other means except you come to me. And that's, it, it, think about it. I mean, now for us, we know it's, it's almost like it's a no-brainer. We already know that. But think about the days where Jesus Christ was, was on the earth. There was a lot of contention and expectation for a Messiah. So for Jesus Christ to say, nobody can be saved except through me. Uh, I mean, the Pharisees would have thought and said, but we know your, your mother, we know your father, we know when they won't give birth to you, we, knew, we know your story. How come you are making such a bold claim? So we need to investigate why Jesus Christ could say that nobody can access salvation except through him. We need to find out what, what gives Jesus Christ the credence or what, what witnesses to, um, what testifies about what Jesus Christ has said, that salvation only comes from, from him. Praise God. So to do that, to, to begin our investigation, so follow me, eh? we, are on a, we are just imagine we are on a, we are, um, we are in a crime scene. Okay, no, we are not a crime scene. We are trying to investigate something. So I am, I am, we, are, we are going to set the scriptures as detectives to find out why Jesus Christ made 
the claim that he made. Okay, so follow me and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse, verse 5 to verse 8. 1 John chapter 5, from verse 5 to verse 8. Anyone can read for us, please. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5 to verse 8. Anyone, please? Um, go ahead to read. First John chapter 5. First John 5. Yeah. Verse 5 to 8. Mm -hmm. Who can defeat the world? Only the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one who came with the water of his baptism and the blood of his death. He came not only with the water but with both the water and the blood. And the Spirit himself testifies that this is true because the Spirit is truth. There are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all give three, and all three give the same testimony. Amen. Thank you. Um, there's a, so I'm guessing you read from the NLT. So I want to read it. There's a verse that some translations um, sort of omit. Good news. From good news. Okay. Um, so let, let me just read verse. I need to read verse seven and verse eight. Okay, because some verses collapse. Some translations collapse these two these two verses. So I'm going to read. I'm reading from the King James version. It says, "For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Word, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost." And these three are one, verse eight, and then there are three that bear witness in the earth, the spirits, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Praise God. Now, when we say reading from verse um, from verse five, ask if started with a question that who can overcome the world? And the answer to that question is given in that same verse. It says that only those who are born of only those rather who believe that Jesus is the son of God, okay? So remember where we are coming from. We are coming from John chapter um, chapter 10, when Jesus Christ made a very bold statement in his day, and he said, nobody can be saved except he come through me, all right? And so we need to investigate why did, why, I mean, on what grounds could Jesus Christ make such authority, um, such statement? And in First John chapter 5 here, he now tells us that there's only one category of people that can overcome the world, okay? And the category of people that can overcome the world are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, there's, in fact, there's, there's a, a, a big, great explanation as, as, to, as to what Jesus Christ meant by the world. Okay, but just take it that um, and the world refers to the systems of the, of the world and the, and the way of doing things, okay, in the secular, secular world, as we put it. So the Bible says that only those who believe in Jesus Christ so now there's another question because if you say we should believe in Jesus, what if, what if there were, what if there were ten Jesuses at that moment? How do we know which Jesus Christ you um we, we need to believe in? And that is a, a similar question to what we are asking in the book of John from what Jesus Christ said. He said nobody can be saved except through me. So the question is why why are you the only one? What how what is the proof? that you are the one by which salvation can be accessed, okay? So this is what we are trying to investigate 
from this scripture. Now, verse 6 begins to give us an unfolding of truth, all right? He says that this is he that came. Now, concerning Jesus, in order for you to know which of the Jesuses, assuming there are a hundred of them, which of the particular Jesus do you need to believe in? And, and verse 6 begins to tell us the revelation. It says that this is he that came by water and blood, meaning the Jesus you should believe in is the Jesus that came by water and blood. He says he did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. And in addition to that, the spirit also bears witness. Now, I need to break this down a bit so we get it. And I like the translation that Kelechi read from us, uh, read for us rather. Um, that's um, good news translation. And I think NLT says, says pretty much the same thing. It says that this Jesus Christ is the one that came by the baptism of the water. And then he also came by the blood of his death. And then the spirit in addition now bears witness. But what is really peculiar about these things? So verse 7 tells us that there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the, and the, and the Spirit. And these three are one. He now goes on to say that there are three that bear witness on the earth. The blood, um, it says the, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, before I explain the... Before I explain these three things, I want to first explain the concept of witness. You see, in the realm of the spirit, um, for, a, for a thing to be established, a witness has to be made about that thing. So a witness basically means um, a, someone needs to testify about, about that thing. And if you read the book of um, if you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the Bible talks about the sacrifice that Abel made. He said that concerning his sacrifice, that God bore, God bore witness to his sacrifice, meaning God accredited his sacrifice and, and testified to it. So imagine we're in a court scenario, right? And then um, there's a case going on. Um, in a typical court setting, there, there's a witness box. And what happens is that the lawyer will bring a witness to give his own testimony about the incidents, basically to say this is what happened. And the witness's testimony validates what is being um, spoken about. So there's a concept, in a very similar way, there's a concept of witness. And um, what God does is that for any earthly activity to be established, heaven has to bear witness to it, or witness has to be born concerning that activity. And I, just permit me, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read it quickly so we, we get this. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, I'll show us something about witnessing about the witness um, um, in the realm of spirit. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse, <clears throat> verse 4, the Bible says that, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He says, by which he obtained witness. So Abraham, Abel's sacrifice granted him witness. The sacrifice was so good that God had to bear witness to it. And it says, by um, which obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. It's almost like saying God went into a witness box to give a testimony about Abel's sacrifice. So there's such a thing in the realm of spirit called witnessing, meaning for someone or for a person or for a, an activity to be established on the earth, there has to be spiritual witness about that person or about that activity. Okay. Now, in explaining this, John reveals to us, right, that in heaven, there are three witnesses. That is, in heaven, there are only three people whose, whose testimonies 
can be taken note of, can be in, in the court of heaven, there are only three people who, who have the stature to, to supply witness. And the Bible says the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And it so happens that all their testimonies are one. That means every time they bear witness about something, they all say the same thing about that person or about that thing, okay? However, when we now come to earth, the, those that bear witness on the earth, are the, the dynamics change a little bit. So the Bible now reveals to us that when you come to earth, there are also three that bear witness. He says the spirit, the water, and the blood. Of course, you will, you will notice that um, in heaven and on earth, there's one common factor or there's one common personality, and that is the spirit, okay? So he says that on earth, so when, it, when it comes to matters that happen on earth, that for it to be established or for, for the person or for the thing to be established, these three must bear witness. The spirit must bear witness, the water must bear witness, and the blood must bear witness. So when, when Jesus Christ said in John chapter 10 that um, anyone who enters through me will, will be saved, the question we will now ask is that if you are claiming that salvation can only be accessed through you on earth, that means these three witnesses on earth must testify that you are the one that salvation must come through. Do you get that? So for Jesus to make such a bold claim, there must be witnesses on earth that testify to his um, to the claims that he's making. All right. So this is what I want us again to look at. So I mean, we're still on our investigation series. Um, call this one episode one. So we are trying to figure out why did Jesus Christ make such a bold statement that salvation can only come through him, right? And we've seen from First John that there must be, that these three witnesses must agree to that statement. They must all be saying the same thing. And just like the witnesses in heaven, the witnesses on earth are agree and they, are, they agree in one. They all bear testimony of the, um, in, the same, in the same direction. So Jesus Christ said he came, um, um, just Christ, sorry, um, um, John chapter six, I beg your pardon, first John chapter, first John chapter five, verse six, where we just read, says that concerning Jesus, now remember there are three that bear witness, right? On earth, spirit, word, uh, spirit, water, and blood. And then verse six now tells us that this Jesus Christ came by water and by blood. He said he didn't come by water and blood only. Um, he didn't come by by water only, sorry, but he also came by blood. And then in addition to that, the spirit now bears witness to it. All right, so, so let, let's, let's just see quickly what, what where, when did Jesus Christ come by water, when did he come by blood, and at what point did the spirit bear witness? Or at what point is the spirit bearing, um, bearing witness? So the first thing, John chapter, first John chapter 5, verse 6 mentions is that Jesus Christ came by water. Now, um, like the Good News Translation says he came by, by water um, of baptism. So we know that John the Baptist was sent ahead of Jesus to declare, to uh, make the way for him, to make, to, to tell about his coming, to, you know, was sent ahead of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons, one of the signs that, one of the signs that God gave John the Baptist to identify Jesus Christ was the water baptism. So John baptized for two reasons. Um, John baptized for repentance, so for, for people to repent from their sins. And then number two reason why John baptized was, was um, to identify who Jesus Christ was because God told him that 
the person who is the savior, I mean, Jesus Christ, um, John the Baptist didn't know who the savior was going to be. Even though Jesus was his cousin, he didn't know that Jesus was going to be the savior. So the sign that God gave John the Baptist was this, that when he's baptizing, right, that when the, when the son of God, when the lamb of God comes, that the way he will know is that during his baptism, when he's baptizing that person, that the heavens will be open and the spirit will descend upon him. And so John held on to that um, word of confirmation. And so John was baptizing, baptizing. And then on a particular day, Jesus Christ came. And John began to feel that this guy might be the Messiah. He said, like, why are you coming to me? I'm not even, I should be the one being baptized of you. But Jesus Christ now said, no, baptize me so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And it was through that baptism, when he was baptized, that the heaven, heavens were opened. And so that baptism was the witness of water. That was when water bore witness to the fact that Jesus is the Lord, um, is the Savior, and Jesus Christ is the Lamb, okay? And so we see that, um, we see that the water there bears witness. Now, at that same instant, right, um, another, another, remember there are three witnesses, so the water has borne witness, we have the blood, and we have the Spirit. At that same instant, right, the Bible says that when Jesus Christ was baptized, the heaven, the heaven was open, and then the heavens were open, and um, um, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus Christ in bodily form like a dove. And then God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the, uh, the ascension of the Holy Spirit on Jesus Christ at that moment also bore witness to, fa to the fact that this person is the Messiah. This person, I mean, out of I, I don't know, hundreds or possible, possibly thousands of people that um, that John the Baptist baptized that period, only Jesus did the heavens open and the Spirit descended on him. So the, descent, the, the descension of the Holy Spirit at that point was the second witness that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. <clears throat> okay? Now we have the water has borne witness, the, the Spirit has borne witness, and we now have one more witness um, that needs to testify, and that is the blood. Now, to, to talk about the testimony of the blood or the witness of the blood, I need to refer us back to I need to refer us back to Cain and Abel. Okay. Now the Bible lets us know in the book of Genesis that when um, when Cain killed his brother Abel, that um, God came to God came to Cain and said, Cain. Where is your brother? And, you know, Cain trying to play smart said, am I my brother's keeper? And then God said, there's something you are not knowing in this equation. And it is the fact that nobody physically saw you when you killed Abel. However, there's a system of testimony that I have infused on the earth that, um, that doesn't allow for any activity to go unannounced. And he said, your brother's blood is actually crying to me. And that's the first, ex first experience we see in scripture that the, that the blood gives witness, that the blood has mouth, the, the blood has vocabulary. That is the human, any blood has vocabulary. And God was saying to, to, to Cain that your brother's blood, even though nobody saw you when you killed your brother, however, his blood is testifying before me that you killed his brother. And that was the first witness, first time we ever saw that blood had the capacity to give witness and to testify. And so knowing that the blood can testify, in fact, this is what God said. He says, your brother's blood is crying out of the ground, meaning 
when when Abel's blood was shed, I, I need to read this, please. Just pardon me, because I, I want you to see something. We need to draw a parallel to um, the death of Jesus Christ, okay? So Genesis chapter, I will just read this quickly. Genesis chapter chapter 4. Um, I want to read verse Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Please just follow me, right? And, and the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? <clears throat> and he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, and he said, What hast thou done? He says, The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So God was basically saying that your bro um, blood has voice, and your brother's blood is crying out to me. He's, he's bringing a testimony about what happened. So even though nobody saw what happened, but your brother's blood, the blood that you shed is actually speaking to me. And he says that it is crying out, crying to me from the ground. Um, for the ground has received your brother's blood. And look at, look at verse 10, verse 11. Um, Genesis chapter 4, verse 11 says, And now thou art caused from the earth, which had opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood. So the earth opened its mouth and it received um, Abel's blood. Okay, now let's come to Jesus. So Jesus was crucified, <clears throat> and then, um, meanwhile, Jesus Christ wasn't the first person to be crucified. It was a, I mean, crucifixion at that time was a Roman, um, was, a, was a way of execution for the Roman, Roman government. And Jesus Christ wasn't the first to be crucified. In fact, Jesus Christ wasn't the only one crucified on that particular day. Um, there were two thieves that were crucified by Jesus' side, like, like the scripture reveals to us. So crucifixion in itself, was not enough to, to show us that this was Jesus or this was the Jesus that we should believe in because there were several people that were crucified. Um, somebody will say, why, let's believe in this person that was crucified, this thief. Let's assume the thief's name is Mr. X. And Mr. X too was crucified. Why can't we believe in Mr. X? So crucifixion alone in itself is not enough to show that this is the Jesus we should believe in. However, something happened when Jesus was crucified that never happened with any other person and has never happened with any other person. And this is it, that when Jesus Christ was crucified, right, his blood, so, so when they got to, I mean, the other people had died on the cross, but Jesus Christ had not yet died. So the, disciples, the, the soldiers, in a bid to, to make him, I mean, in a bid to whatever their, their principle was, they pierced his side and out of his sight gushed out blood and water, okay? And when the blood touched the ground, now remember when Jesus Christ died, the Bible says that there was an earthquake, okay? That earthquake happened because, remember when Abel, Abel's blood was shed, the Bible says that the earth received his blood, okay? But when Jesus Christ died and his blood was shed, the earth attempted to receive his blood, but his blood was was too powerful for the earth to accommodate. So there was an earthquake. And that earthquake was a sign that this blood we are receiving is not a normal blood. So the blood was bearing witness that this person that was crucified and his blood had been shed. I mean, several people's blood had been shed before Jesus. There was no earthquake, nothing happened. But the moment Jesus' blood was shed, because of the, of the witness that the blood had to present, the Bible says that there was an earthquake. So the blood of Jesus Christ bore witness. And in fact, when it happened, when the earthquake happened, the Bible reveals to us that the people watching, um, the soldiers and the other people watching around, 
they now believe that this Jesus is the Christ. Praise Jesus. Um, I hope that um, we can understand that. I, I, I want to try and read a scripture um, from the book of John to explain this point. I'm not sure. So just give me um, 30 seconds. Let me find where exactly that is. So I, I just, just what I explained to you, I want to, I want to, um, I want to explain, I want to show us from scripture. Um, so this is the book of John chapter... Okay. Um, John chapter. Um, just give me a minute, please. Um. Okay, so um, all right. So I'm not finding the exact scripture, but I'll, I'll look for it before the end or towards the end of this of Bible study. I just want to show us the the testimony that the that the soldier gave about you know when they witnessed what what happened. So the blood blood bore witness that this is Jesus Christ. I mean, just in case anybody was in doubt as to whether this was the Christ. Okay, so the 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 water bore witness, the spirit bore witness. And the blood bore witness. But one more time, again, because somebody can say that, well, I did not, I wasn't around when Jesus Christ was crucified, so I don't believe anything. Maybe it's just history. People are just trying to brainwash me with history. I don't believe it. Someone else may even say that, yes, I was not there when um, when Jesus Christ was being baptized. So how am I even sure that the heavens were open? How am I sure that it was the Holy Spirit? What if it was just a random bed that was just flying and flying around Jesus Christ? You know, anybody can dispute that. So because of the possibility of people bringing up doubts in their hearts, in their hearts, and also because of the possibility of even even believers not being certain about what they have received, that witness of the spirit still continues till today. Such that even though you and I were not there when Jesus Christ was um, on the earth, you and I were not there when Jesus Christ died physically. However, because of the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit continues to bear witness in our hearts. And that's why there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And then on the earth, the Spirit, the blood, and the water. And the constant, um, constant personality in these witnesses is the Spirit of God. So at every point in time, even if we're not there when Jesus Christ died, the Holy Spirit still bears witness that Jesus is the way to salvation. Praise God. All right, I hope that explanation was clear enough. Um, thank you, Cecil. Matthew 27, verse 54. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 54. Um, let me just read that quickly because I was looking for it. Aha. Um, and when the centurion, and, when, and now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Exactly. That's what I was looking for. Thanks so much, Cecil. All right. So we started from, remember, our cortex is still John chapter 10. So let's go back there. John chapter 10. And we just, I went all that way to establish 
the fact that when you know, Jesus Christ made a bold statement in John chapter 10, verse, um, verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enters, he shall be saved. So that was a very bold statement for Jesus to make in his day and time because at that point, people believed in Moses and some of them were expecting a, a Messiah that would just naturally drop from heaven and save, the, save them from, <clears throat> from the hold of the Roman Empire. But Jesus Christ now said here that anybody that wants to be saved must come through me. So I went all this route to show us that why Jesus Christ could make such a bold statement because he had the three witnesses bearing testimony of that truth. Praise God. Okay, so the second revelation Jesus Christ makes is found in John chapter, that's in John chapter 10 and in verse 11. <clears throat> John chapter 10, verse 11. Remember, we're looking at Jesus Christ as the door. The door here means the access, okay? And um, um, the access to what? Like I said, Jesus said he's the access to salvation. Now, John chapter 10, verse 11. Let me read it for us. John chapter 10, verse 11 now says that I am the good shepherd. Now, I, I take a pause here. I don't, just, just take, take note what that Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd, meaning there are probably other shepherds that, or other people that presented themselves, themselves as, as shepherds, but Jesus Christ came and said, I am the good shepherd. So my, the question is, what, I mean, out of so many people who, are, who could be shepherds, um, what is that thing that differentiates you from the rest of them? And Jesus Christ did not leave us in doubt. He explained to us the implication of the good shepherd, what it meant. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he now tells us that the way you know a good shepherd is that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Praise God. Um, okay, let, let me just continue to read verse 12. He says, but he that is an hireling um, and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, he seeth the wolf and liveth the sheep and, and fleeth, and the wolf catches them, catches them and scatters them. So the person that is not the shepherd, right, you will not know, you, the only way you know the real shepherd is in the face of adversity or in the face of, the, of, a, of a potential threat. And the good shepherd does, shows he's a good shepherd by being willing to give his life even for the sheep. All right, now, Jesus Christ was saying this as regards salvation. Even though um, these statements here could apply into several aspects of our lives, including, you know, ministry, including um, um, leadership, including several areas. But primarily, and in this context, Jesus Christ was talking about salvation, all right? And he said that the good shepherd is one who lays down his life for his sheep. Now, that sounds, that sounds like a very good thing, right? It sounds like, oh... I am the sheep. Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. We are full of gratitude. We are so excited. We are so blessed. But when we study deeply, we see that that statement has serious implications for us as believers. Okay? And the first thing I want us to do, to first scripture I want us to look at is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. So remember, Jesus Christ said, the good shepherd lays down his, sheep, lays down his life for his sheep. So the question I mean, the, a typical question to ask is, why? Why would the shepherd have to do that? Um, what, what is the expectation? <clears throat> what is the expectation of the shepherd in doing that? So let us read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse um, 15. All right, someone can please read. Wait, wait, hold on. Sorry, not 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I beg your pardon. 
Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Someone should please read for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Anyone there? He died for everyone so that those who renew life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Is NLP. Thank you. Thank you, Ida. So, um, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, where we just read now, um, 5 verse 15, gives us the implication of what Jesus Christ did for us. Um, it's almost like saying that Jesus Christ, well, well, for lack of a better term, just permit me to put it this way, for lack of a better term, Jesus Christ baited us by first of all dying for us so that he said, I'm going to give, lay my life for you so that by if by any chance anybody eventually accepts salvation through him, that the person will become indebted to him, okay? Um, and this is what he says, that he, Jesus Christ died for us. So the good shepherd now that laid his life for us, he did that so that eventually those who receive salvation and are able to live through him will no longer live for themselves, but they'll live for the one who died for them. And so let me read this. Um, let me read it from the King James Version. It says that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth live no, should henceforth, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, this is a very um, a very serious um, aspect of our Christian faith because it's, it's, it's easy for, for us to claim our rights in Christ. It is also easy for us to claim all the advantages and privileges that Jesus Christ has made available to us because of his death. You know, the Bible says that um, um, he has give, given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He says that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, so these are exciting revelation and truth. But when we receive that revelation, we are not, when we receive Christ, rather, we don't only receive the privileges, but we must also adopt the responsibilities of the salvation that we have received. And this is it that if you receive salvation, you are admitting that Jesus Christ died instead of you. What that means is that you were supposed to die, right? And Jesus Christ died for you. So in in the place of, of your death, Jesus Christ died. That means that you are forever indebted to his life. And that consequently means that um, you don't have the liberty to live your life the way you want to. You are currently indebted to Jesus. As long as you are a Christian, as long as you've accepted Jesus Christ, you are indebted to his life. You know, I, I know people in the, in the world say, you know, do whatever you want to do. Do what's in your heart. Just do what makes you feel happy. You know, uh, how did I even say it? Um, um, Self-power or all those motivational things they say. But let me tell you, as a, as a Christian, you can't just do what you want to do. Um, you can't just live your life the way you want to. You can't just do what pleases you or what, whatever they say, you know, um, um, in all in the name of self-care, do whatever makes you happy. That's, that's not possible in the kingdom of God, simply because this verse reveals it to us. Jesus died for you so that you can no longer live for yourself, but you have to live for the one who, who 
died for you and was raised again to life. So the proof of our maturity in Christ is not our revelation of all the things that Jesus Christ has done for us, but rather it is now the, the, the lifestyle we live that shows our indebtedness to what Jesus Christ has done for us. All right, let, let me take that again. That the proof of spiritual maturity is not that I know all that. Just, I mean, it's fantastic, and I, I must. It's, it's important, not just fantastic. It is extremely important. You know what Christ has done for you, but it is also equally important that you know what Christ expects of you to do. So your salvation doesn't just end. Salvation experience doesn't just end at you receiving what Jesus Christ has done and then saying. Um, um, and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, um, um, all of that, which, like, like I said, is very important. You have that revelation. But you must proceed from that revelation to now asking yourself, if I was in darkness and Jesus Christ rescued me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So the question is, what is he expecting of me? I mean, he has been generous enough to give me all things. So what is he now expecting from me? Because the Bible reveals to us that to whom much is given, much is expected. So if Jesus has given you so much, then I can assure you that he's expecting so much from you. And the first um, experience, or the first, or the, I mean, the first experience of, of this expectation is that we no longer live for ourselves. So I want to pose it, throw you a question. I want to throw a question to you, and this is a, a food for thought. Ask yourself, in the recent times, have I been living for myself? I mean... Um, did I take this job because of myself? Did I consider, did I factor in what the will of God would be for me? Or did I just look at the salary? Did I compare the location? Did I look at the prospect? And I just said, yeah, this job is ideal based on my, my logical calculation. Um, the person I'm dating or the person I'm, I am looking to marry or whatever it is, um, have I considered the, the, the father's will? Have I considered Jesus' opinion in it? Because I assure you, once you come to Christ, you no longer own your life, you know. You it's it is you no longer you don't have access. Like again, let me just say, like I said before, you, you can't just live your life anyhow. Um, and this is beyond this is transcending beyond what is seen and what is not seen. This is beyond what is just good and evil. This goes further into whether the, this is what Jesus wants for me. So a good thing, and I encourage all of us, a good thing to do whenever you're you are faced with every decision right, is to ask yourself, what would Jesus want me to do? Because there are many things that, um, like, like we said in um, one of our Bible studies, there are many things that will not be wrong in themselves. They are not explicitly wrong to do. But they, Jesus may not want you to do them. And as long as you receive salvation, remember, you are indebted to Christ Jesus. So whatever direction he gives, you no longer own your life to say, it's my life, I'll live it the way I want. It is not your life. You cannot live it the way you want. There's no there's no, I, I'll do whatever I, I want when it comes to, to the kingdom. And, you know, I, I need to read this. You know, Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd, right? Um, thinking about this, a, a scripture will come to your mind, if it hasn't already come to your mind, is Psalm 23. Um, Psalm 23 verse, let's read just verse 1. We'll just read verse 1. I mean, all of you can quote it, so you know it. Psalm 23 verse 1, the Bible, the Bible says that, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want now, that is a very interesting thing because most times when we, when we quote the verse, 
we are thinking of, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not be in need. God will provide for me. He leads me beside still waters. Oh, that's amazing. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Hallelujah. Um, he restores my soul. Wow, praise the Lord. That's a very exciting verse of scripture. But the key to accessing all those things that is listed, all those things that are listed, is, is found in verse 1, in the very first statement. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. You need to understand that Jesus Christ as a shepherd, he's not, he's a Lord, then he's your shepherd. A Lord means he can do as he pleases. And if he's going to be the shepherd of your life, you must first accept the, his lordship over your life. So a lot of times we're expecting, I mean, part of the duties of a shepherd is to, is to guide, is to protect, and is to provide, okay? So a shepherd protects the sheep, a shepherd provides for the sheep, and a shepherd guides the sheep. And this is awesome. But if we are going to experience all these dimensions in God, then the first thing we must do is we must actively submit to his lordship. And I, I use the word actively because it is a daily process. It is an everyday experience where we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? So somebody might give you, you might, I mean, you might just get paid your salary and God will say, I want you to give half of your salary either to a particular person or for a particular cause. And you might be grumbling and say, but Lord, I've already done my budget. I have my plans. I have everything you know, sorted out. But because Jesus is first and foremost your Lord, you must submit to his Lordship actively. And again, let me say that the, the proof of maturity for a believer is the extent to which we have yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you don't yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ daily, it will be impossible to experience his leading, his provision, and his protection. So you see that shepherd dimension, right, that um, we see in, in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd, and then he goes on to list all the advantages and things to benefit. All that experience is hinged on the fact that Jesus is Lord over your life, okay? And so it's important we know this, that Jesus is Lord. When Jesus Christ said that the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep, there's an implication to that um, experience. And the implication is what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 has shown us, that he died for us so that we will no longer live for ourselves, but we will live for the one who died for us and, 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 and was risen again. I want to show something in, um, is this in second? Hold on one minute. Let me read something. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. I want to show us something from scripture. Romans chapter 5, because the Lordship of Jesus, I believe, I think a lot of Christians get excited by the, by the privileges of being a Christian, but they are not actively submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And see, and truth be told, you know, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that God cannot be mocked, meaning that you cannot really deceive God. Um, and we, we, as Christians, we must go beyond... We must go beyond the, it, it, it's so childish to think that we should only do the right things when people are watching us. And then when we come to church, oh, we are all pious and good. When we leave church and we go elsewhere, uh, we don't, we don't, our, our Christianity can, is not reflected or our faith in God is not reflected. We either, we lose conscious, consciousness of the fact that Jesus Christ, you know, died for us. I remember some time ago, someone asked me back in university, someone asked me a question and said, Victor, tell me the real truth. And this, this guy was really honest. He said, tell me the truth. Why, why don't you cheat in exam? Like, I mean, even if there are no invigilators or even if, yeah, even if there's no invigilator or anything, you still just mind your business. Why don't you? 
ask questions in the exam hall or give questions or give answers or you know cheat one way or the other. And I told the guy that there are two reasons. Um, if I remember the conversation very well, there are two reasons. Number one is that if I begin to do that, I would I would lose confidence in my ability to tackle problems. And what that would mean is later in the future, I'll be depending on somebody to you know help me or provide assistance, and I won't be I wouldn't be independent enough. That's number one reason. Number two reason I told him is that my relationship with God does not allow me to do it. I don't know whether it, for you, you may feel it's not right. There's no way in the Bible stating, stating verbatim that thou shalt not copy somebody's work in example. But I just told him that, see, my relationship with God, it does not allow me to do it. And let me say this, that as you grow in God, right, one of the ways you, one of the things you observe is that your indebtedness to Christ will, will increase so much that it will be difficult for you to do certain things, even though those things are not explicitly wrong in themselves. But your relationship with God and the, the understanding of how much you are indebted to God will not allow you to do certain things. All right? So I want to read Romans chapter 5, verse... Um, um, uh, where is it? Romans? Sorry, please, someone help me. The scripture that says... Um, if you confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, um, we'll be saved. Please, someone should help me with that scripture. Um, oh, where is it? You know what? Please, if you find the scripture, just share with us this. There is, um, I want to show something there. Anyone, has anyone found it? That is, give me a minute, please. Okay, I'm sorry, guys. It seems we were kicked out. Um, I guess my internet. Please confirm if you can hear me clearly. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Okay, thank you. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. So Romans chapter 10, verse nine, I just want to show something from there. Romans chapter 10, verse nine. It says that, uh, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the, the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thy heart that All right. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, my internet is tripping. So please pardon me. Um, okay, so let's let's wrap this up. Um, so I said here that Romans chapter chapter eight verse nine. That's where I was reading. Romans chapter eight verse nine says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Um, and I shall believe in thy heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So what I wanted to bring out here is that the first thing, what we do in the process of salvation, he says you must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to Christ, we are confessing him as our Lord. And like I've said over the past few minutes. Oh, okay, we're back on the other one. 